This morning we'll be in Luke 5, so if you haven't already turned in your Bible to Luke chapter 5, that would be the gospel, the good news about Jesus according to Luke, according to Dr. Luke, if you want the full, uh, full explanation. And in chapter 5, we're going to be learning about the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. Now, what do we mean, I'll ask you, when we say that someone is the authority on a matter? When we say someone is the authority, we obviously mean they know the most. Uh, maybe they're the best at something. We say it in sports. We might say someone is the world champion. Well, if someone is the world champion, they're the authority on the matter in their given sport. Uh, in the world of finance, we might say that the one who has accumulated the, the most wealth is the authority on the matter. And every discipline, every matter has the authority. But one thing's for certain, no one is the authority on everything, right? You can have Warren Buffett commend LeBron James for his business savvy. But no one, including Warren Buffett, thinks that the NBA player is going to be the next Warren Buffett. The authority on basketball and the authority on finance? Not very likely to happen. But let's just assume for a moment that it did. He's still not the authority because you still have all of these other seemingly countless disciplines. Whether it be in the sciences, the hard sciences, the social sciences, history, all the different kinds of history, world history, North American history, you have all of these different kinds, British history, Middle Eastern history. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And every one of these areas has their authorities, right? But those change too, because who was the authority is replaced by someone else who knows more or has more, and now they're the authority. And then there's Jesus. This morning we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus. We're going to try to better understand the authority of Jesus because Jesus is said later on to possess, ready for this, all authority, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus is said later to be the one who is the king of kings, the authority over the authorities. He's said to be the Lord of lords, the authority over the authorities. Who is this Jesus? Just what kind of authority does he have? And Luke wants us to grapple with that matter. Who is Jesus? Well, he's some kind of authority. Just what kind of authority is he as he is described as having all authority? Luke chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 is our text. And as we look at Luke 5, 1 to 11, we're going to be able to highlight four demonstrations of Jesus' authority. Four demonstrations of Jesus' authority that will help us to understand just why he's said to have all authority. And hopefully that helps us to see him as different than every other authority. And I hope it even helps us even further and pushes us to be worshipers of Jesus 
because of his authority. Number one, the first demonstration. Jesus is the authority on the Bible. Jesus is the authority on the Bible. Not very surprising to most of us in this room. But think first century, and it's pretty radical when it comes to surprising. He's the authority on the Bible. Let's read the first few verses and get a glimpse of this, where it says in verse 1 of chapter 5, on one occasion, while the crowd was, was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, verse 2 says, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and were washing their nets, verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he, Jesus, sat down and taught the people from the boat. So, he creates a buffer, right? The people are pressing in on him. Luke likes to use language purposefully and... Um, with a specific purpose, and he wants us to see that the people are pressing in on him. It's something graphic. There's no more place to go. He's going to get his feet wet next. And so what does he do? He gets the boat and has a new boat-shaped pulpit and sits down and has a little buffer. It's meant to be seen as extreme. We're, we're, we're in the Galilean region. It's not, like the, the, it's not like there isn't a lot of room. There's all kinds of room, all kinds of farmland. It's very green. You could pack as many people in as you want. But Luke wants us to see what's happening here. It's not okay just to hear Jesus. Because of his authority, they want to be as close as they possibly can. And they just keep getting closer, and they keep getting closer, and they keep getting closer. They're pressing in on him to the point where Jesus says, enough. I've got a solution. I'll just get in a boat. Calm everybody down a little bit. Now, one thing we don't see explicitly in our passage is his authority. But when you remember chapter 4, or if I can point out to you what we saw in chapter 4, and then you have it go right into chapter 5, you say the reason they're pressing in on him, the reason for this is because of his authority when it comes to the Bible. Most certainly that's what's going on. Just sample one verse back to chapter 4, verse 32. 432, uh, and I'll make more mention of chapter 4 in just a little while, but in 432 it said, and they were astonished, the people were astonished at his teaching, at Jesus' teaching, for his word possessed authority. Just a mini review regarding that verse and that reality. As I've said before, it wasn't that Jesus was the first authority. It wasn't that Jesus was the first one to raise his voice. It wasn't that, the that Jesus was the first one who knew anything. But there was something extraordinary about Jesus when he opened up the text of Scripture and explained it. It was totally and radically, distinctly different from all of the other authorities. For starters, Jesus didn't have to quote other rabbis to prove his point. He, he just explained the Scriptures. And, and, and people heard him teach in a way that they'd never heard before. Their favorite Bible teachers weren't, weren't, weren't anything like this. Their favorite Bible teachers were impressed with Jesus. I mean, he, he's totally different. 
we get a glimpse into what's going on when we cross-referenced. We did it last time in Matthew 7, different occasion where Jesus teaches. And they're so astonished and they're so impressed because he teaches as one having the authority. And then it says, unlike the scribes, I mentioned last week, they're the authorities. He's an authority on a totally different level than they are. He's matchless. He's different. He's the truth incarnate. And so when he explains the truth, it, it, it comes alive and, and makes sense in a way that, that no one had ever made sense of it before. It's refreshing. It's astounding. It's exciting. And so here are these people that are, they're pressing in on him. It gives evidence. It points to the fact that he has authority when it comes to explaining the scriptures. That's our context from chapter 4. Explaining the scriptures. And do notice it said in Luke 5, 1, they're pressing in on him to hear the word of God, which is what we learned about in chapter 4. And that's where he really shines, where he expresses this authority. And that's when it comes to explaining the word of God. And so here's what's happening. What's happening is it's becoming clearer and clearer. Vision is getting clearer that Jesus isn't just the son of a carpenter. He's got authority. And he's got authority when it comes to the Bible. Like no one else. Like no one else. All this happening at this hard to pronounce lake called Lake Gennesaret. You say, well, what is Lake Gennesaret? Lake Gennesaret is the Sea of Galilee. So if you want to know where we are regionally, he's still where he was. He's still at the Sea of Galilee. You say, why is it called by this weird name I can't say? Because technically, the Sea of Galilee isn't a sea at all. Technically, the Sea of Galilee is a lake, Lake Gennesaret, but it's also called by another name. It's called the Sea of Galilee. Just like you might say, I'm going downtown. And someone else might say, I'm going to the old market. From my perspective, it's the same thing. Just two things we happen to call it. Luke calls it both things. To this day, people refer to the Lake of Gennesaret as the sea first time I went to the Sea of Galilee, I was there like all good godly Christ followers would be. I was there to wakeboard. Um, <laughs> so my friend Josh Thiessen and I went to wakeboard on the Sea of Galilee. And when we showed up at this restaurant place to meet the Jewish guys that had the wakeboard boats, um, the guy at the restaurant said, I've got to call them on the cell phone because they're still out at sea. So even today, even though it's not a sea, even though today, even the local Jews still refer to it, whether it's the lake or the sea. Why am I telling you all that? Because it's winter and I miss wakeboarding. But anyway, hey, if you can't walk on water, it's the next best thing. That's Christ-likeness. just want you to know that. <laughs> still call it a sea today. Probably, by the way, because it can become so tumultuous. When we talk about Jesus calming the storm, I'm sure I'll bring it up again because I love to talk about this place. But literally, the morning we wakeboarded and it was like glass, like nothing I've ever seen before, the guy said, okay, we're done. And I'm like, what do you mean we're done? We're done. He said, look over there. And here come the swells. Here come the four-foot swells. To the point where in the afternoon, we're back at the hotel and the beach at the hotel, and I kid you not, this is a lake, 13 by 7-ish. We're body surfing, riding the waves in like you would in the Pacific Ocean. There's a reason why they call it the Sea of Galilee. All right, enough of me talking about my fun trips. 
Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is at Lake Gennesaret, and they're impressed, and so he creates the buffer. But really what we're meant to see is he has authority when it comes to the Bible. He is the authority when it comes to the Bible, unlike anybody else. And the, the, the motion of these people, combined with chapter 4, remind us of that. Number two, second evidence of Jesus' authority or demonstration of Jesus' authority showing his or cluing us in on his ultimate authority, Jesus is the authority on fishing. Jesus is the authority on fishing. Sounds strange? I think it should sound strange. Let's see, though. Look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Verse 5, And Simon answered, Master... We toiled all night and took nothing. And let's just have a nice big pause there. Jesus, son of a carpenter, talking to Peter. And up until not very long ago, if you were a fisherman, it meant probably what? Your dad was a fisherman. And if your dad was a fisherman, what? His dad was probably a fisherman. Which meant probably what? His dad was a fisherman. Peter was a professional fisherman. Not only was he a professional fisherman, try to say that fast, he probably was who knows how many generations professional fisherman. If anybody knew how to fish, it would be somebody like Peter. Jesus comes from carpentry. Peter comes from fishing. Jesus should know very little. Let's not say nothing. Very little when it comes to commercial fishing, which is what is going on here. So Peter says, Master, we toiled night and day and took nothing. And then notice how interesting it is at the latter part of verse 5. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Why doesn't Peter just laugh him off the boat? Why doesn't Peter say, what kind of crackpot is this guy? Why doesn't Peter say, who do you think you are? You, you have no, you're clueless. Peter doesn't say that because by now, Peter knows something about Jesus. I'm not saying he's got it all sorted out, but by now he knows something about Jesus because in chapter 4 and earlier, we saw that Jesus, by a word, casts out demons. Nobody could solve that problem. And Jesus just says something and it's fixed because he has an authority like Peter ain't ever seen before. How about Peter's own mother-in-law, sick one minute, Jesus, by a word, fully restores her health to the point where she's fully engaged. And he's also heard Jesus teaching. And now, whether Peter knows it or not, it's pretty significant in verse 5 in the latter part where he says, at your word, I will let down the nets. Because by now, he has seen what the word of Christ does we're meant to see that i think whether peter knows the fullness of it or not jesus is not a garden variety anything 
Jesus is, if I can use it in a positive sense, Jesus is an enigma. (laughs) There's nothing to compare Jesus to. He is the authority on whatever he talks about. He is the authority. Think about what you do, what your hobbies are, what you're good at, what you excel at. Think about where where you excel at work. Think about where you excel in a certain sport or where you excelled. Jesus knows more about it than you do. Even if you are the authority, you're not the authority. Because Jesus says things and it is. You name it. Fishing is incidental. It could have been anything. Could have been absolutely anything because Jesus is incomparable. He's different. He has absolute authority. And now we're getting a glimpse why he's going to be described as king of kings. He knows everything there is to know about fishing. Even if he's never fished before a day in his life. Now, maybe his you know, relatives took him fishing. Maybe they did it now and then. I'm not saying that he didn't. But even if he'd never, ever seen a fish before, which is not the reality, he still would have been the best fisherman ever. And so Peter, Peter's seeing it for something of what it is. So it says, look at, look at verse 5. It says, excuse me, verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And you're like, that's quite a scene. Jesus is the authority on fishing. And just for fun, think about all the other things associated with fishing that we could run down through the list. I thought Jesus is the authority on ichthology, study of fish. Jesus is the authority on hydrology, water. Jesus is the authority on limnology, freshwater science. Jesus is the authority on aquatic ecology. Jesus is the authority on hydrobiology. Jesus is the authority on absolutely everything. Which might mess with you. Especially if you're good at things. And we're all good at different things. All authority is what he possesses. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just son of a carpenter. He's more than those things. It's not that Jesus, oh, he's such a renaissance man, pre-renaissance granted, but he's such a renaissance man, he knows how to do a lot of things. It's not just that he, you know, took a crash course in fishing because he's a quick learner. He's more than a human being. He's the one. And Peter's beginning to see that he's the one. I don't know about you, but I, I like... I'm such a prideful person. I mean, I've gotten over it now. I've achieved humility. But (laughs) 
I mean, there's something about if you have if you have knowledge from your past, you know, growing up or whatever, and then 20 years go by and you show up at a reunion or you show up at some, you know, party for work or whatever, and they're doing something you know how to do. It's just fun, you know, to kind of flex. They're like, wow, you know, I didn't know you were so good. And I'm like, oh, it's no big deal. You know, I mean, it's just, we kind of like that. And then we go to the ER. <laughs> it's kind of how it works. It's not like that with Jesus. Wouldn't matter what it is. He made the human body. Gravity? Yeah, he thought it up. You name it, he's the authority. And again, I would imagine that that might rub some of us the wrong way. But Luke is trying to show us in recording history that Jesus is incomparable. You don't have a category for him. He's not a peer. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're starting to see why he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the authority in everything. And here we say we see he's the authority in fishing, which isn't very, to, to us, most of us, it's a hobby. Some it's an obsession. It's a big deal to Peter. Okay, let's move on. A third demonstration of Jesus' authority pointing to his ultimate authority, and that would be his authority on the human heart. His authority on the human heart. And I don't mean biologically, though we could talk about that as well by implication, but that's not what's in view here. Let's look at verse 8, 9, and 10 and see Jesus is the authority on the human heart. And this gets exciting and uncomfortable all at the same time. Look at verse 8 with me where it says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. How about that? He sees what Jesus just did, and he says, Depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. In other words, Jesus, get off of my boat, right? Get away from me. Get 350,000 miles away from me. I don't want to be close to you. And you say, Why would he do that? You'd think he'd embrace Jesus and say, You are going to make us a lot of money, right? We'll give some back to the Lord. <laughs> no. The reality is he knows that Jesus knows him in a way he doesn't want to be known. He knows now that Jesus knows him. He knows Peter beyond what Peter does externally. Peter, the law-abiding citizen. Peter, the upstanding Jew. Peter who does the right things as far as everybody can see, right? Right? And instead, he realizes he's putting two and two together like we want to put two and two together. We're not just talking about son of a carpenter. We're not just talking about a guy who knows about fishing. We're talking about the one who has all authority. And that would mean he's the holy sovereign God and he's in my boat. And you know what that means is I am so busted. It's not even funny because he knows me right in a way my wife doesn't know me. Oh. Get, Jesus, you, you get off of my boat or I'll grab the, the weights. Right? 
mentally think about how there's precedent for this. There's precedent for when people meet God, when people are in the presence of God, of them acting like this. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah the prophet, the holiest guy on the planet, the holy prophet of God, Isaiah. And Isaiah is ushered in and given a glimpse of the throne room of God Almighty. And what does Isaiah see there in Isaiah chapter 6? He sees the angels worshiping and the angels are crying out and they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does Isaiah do? And Isaiah is there. Isaiah says, Oh, this is awesome, right? I'll go back and get a big book deal. Even if I'm from Nebraska, you know, or whatever. Isaiah doesn't do that. When people see God and they're in the presence of God, they do like Isaiah did. And Isaiah says, woe is me. Not some kind of Romeo and Juliet. Woe, woe is me, right? Or I am undone. No, it's woe is me, right? Kill me. I'm damned. I'm smoked. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm coming apart because I am a sinner. The holiest guy on the planet knows that he is facing hell because he's seen who God really is. God in his holiness. God who is a judge. And he himself sees himself as a violator. Peter is seeing it. Peter's doing an Isaiah here. It's pretty, pretty amazing. The only reason Peter would act like this, lest you think I'm reading into this, the only reason he would act like this is because he sees Jesus for who he is. And he sees himself for who he is. And he knows Jesus sees him for who he is at the end of verse 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I am a lawbreaker. I am one who is an idolater at heart. I have not loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I am a violator of the holy law of God, and you are that holy God, and I am busted. This isn't the only indicator, by the way. If you would turn to John 2 real quick with me. It's not the only indicator that that Jesus knows knows the heart. Um, John 2 is pretty interesting. Jesus knows the heart. And it's pretty similar. It's unsettling. And by the way, I want you to be unsettled by the reality that Jesus knows our hearts. Peter is not thinking, oh, it's so good now that I know he's God. That means I know he knows my heart. That is not where he goes. If initially you take comfort from knowing the fact that God knows somebody's heart, you're confused. (laughs) Peter has advice for you. Grab the weights and jump off the boat. At least from an unbelieving standpoint, from an unbeliever standpoint, that Jesus knows your heart is not a measure of comfort. But here's what it is. It is helpful in understanding who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. But it's not comforting to know that Jesus knows our heart. It's damning to know that He knows our heart. 
So if you're listening to a Bible teacher telling you, just take comfort. I know you do all the wrong things, but just take comfort because Jesus knows your heart. Just know that you're hearing from somebody who doesn't really know who Jesus is. Because by the way, if you don't know how bad it is that Jesus knows your heart, you'll never know that he's the great one who knows your heart, therefore he knows your problem, and he can solve your heart problem. See, first we need to be like Peter and be utterly and totally paralyzed. Oh no! He knows my heart! So then we can eventually say, oh yes! If he knows my heart, he knows I'm not just having a problem. He knows I'm corrupt in my heart and he can provide atonement. Right? Well, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 24. Context is people saying they believe in Jesus for all intents and purposes. They're, they're becoming believers from what we would see, naked eye. Uh, verse 24 of John 2 says, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. And the word play is, they're entrusting themselves to Jesus. They're believing in Jesus, and Jesus is not entrusting himself to them. <laughs> they're believing in Jesus, and how about this? Jesus isn't believing in them. He isn't believing in their profession. Pretty wild, let's keep going. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. See, that's not a comforting thing. <laughs> Verse 25, and, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Another way of saying he knew their hearts, regardless of how good they might look on the outside, whitewashed tombs, Jesus sometimes said, inside it's dead men's bones. He knows people's hearts. Our text just complements the John text. Jesus knows the human heart. Once again, that's not in our passage to give us comfort. But it is in our passage to help us see Jesus for who he really is. Which puts us on the road to finding comfort. Because it puts us on the road to finding the solution, right? It's exciting. It's not good news yet, but it's going to come to good news. But it's so good that Jesus knows what the real problem is. It's so good that Jesus isn't saying, well, based upon everything I could observe, because I'm a good teacher, I think maybe uh, say this many prayers and do this many things, and um, I think maybe your good will outweigh your bad, and, you know, God knows the heart. It's so good that Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus just acts like the God-man who he is, and Peter goes, <gasps> if that's who he is, he knows my heart, and I'm in trouble. It's so helpful. It's so helpful that Jesus can see your sinful heart. Because then he can provide the solution to your sinful heart. Not by giving you more to do but ultimately by going to Calvary and atoning for your offenses and my offenses and Peter's offenses. It's so much better. So much better. Let's go to number four and wrap things up. Number four, fourth demonstration of Jesus' authority pointing to his ultimate authority is Jesus' authority in salvation. Jesus' authority in salvation. And we could probably do a fifth one and we could say it's Jesus' authority over human beings. 
I went, I had to flip a coin to decide which one I wanted to emphasize without creating a new point because we're going to see he's authoritative over human beings, but we're also going to see he's the authoritative one in salvation. That makes sense because he knows the human heart. And so now we come to verse 10, the latter part. If you look there with me, it says, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, please bear with me for a moment. I'm going to say the wrong thing, kind of, and kind of not, to make a point. If this is all that Jesus ever does, if he doesn't go to Calvary, and if he doesn't provide all the great things that salvation provides, if Jesus doesn't provide righteousness for us, so there's no justification because of his work, if Jesus doesn't atone for Peter's sins, let's use Peter here, if Jesus doesn't rise again from the dead, if Jesus doesn't ascend to his Father's right hand and intercede on Peter's behalf, if, everything, if, if, if history for Peter and Jesus, Jesus in particular, stops here, then Jesus just gave Peter horrible advice. Right? I mean, think about it. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. Don't you know God's only attribute is love? You know? What, what? You must have had some childhood psychoses and traumas and, you know, you're just easily scared. You know, I'm, I'm your friend. I'm nice. You're nice. God's nice. Isn't that nice? I mean, <laughs> this advice from Jesus this command from Jesus is awesome advice, comforting advice, a great command. It's the right thing to say, but it's only the right thing to say because we know how it all fleshes out. Jesus knew how it was all going to flesh out. It's only right, and we can only see it in right in light of the big picture when you look at the, the gospel account holistically. Because he should be afraid. He should be utterly and completely paralyzed with fear because Jesus is the holy God who is the judge. And yet Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's because Jesus knows what's going to happen, right? From the very beginning, he knows what's going to happen. This is why I take you back again and again to the way Matthew begins. And I encourage you to always remember how that gospel begins so you read the whole thing in the right light where he says, I think it's chapter 1, verse 21, maybe verse 23, 24, but I think it's 21, where it says, you shall call his name Jesus because he will what? He will save his people from their sins, from their offenses. He's more than a teacher. He's a savior. But in that light, I love it that Jesus is so sure about what he's going to do. It's so secure, it's so absolute that even though it hasn't happened yet, he can say to Simon, do not be afraid. I, I know who you are. I, I, I know the hearts of men. Don't be afraid. Surely that's in light of what's going to happen. Jesus is going to die for Peter. Jesus is going to live for Peter. Jesus is going to raise for Peter. So Peter doesn't have to be afraid. He's such an authority on salvation. He can speak of things that haven't even happened yet as being things we can have confidence in. 
And then he says in verse 10, from now on, you'll be catching men. Don't be afraid of me. I know who you are. But because of who I am and what I will do, you don't have to be afraid. We, we have to read between the lines there, not to artificially uh, read things into it, but because we know how the whole thing goes. Jesus knows how the whole thing goes. Verse 11 then says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. How about that? Just had the biggest day ever of your career. But Jesus just said, we're going to fish for men now, and so what do you do? I mean, they, they didn't even take time to put it on eBay. Or the equivalent. It's meant to be shocking. They just walk away. Their livelihood, from generation to generation to generation, they just walk away. Because they've seen Jesus for who He is, at least to some degree, and they see Him as the authority. And when the authority, who does all the things He's done, says... Now you're going to fish for people. Boat? What boat? It's over. It's done. It's taken care of. He's the authority. He's the authority over everything and everyone. He's the authority in salvation and everything else. Try that, by the way, the next time you're successful at your job or at school or wherever. Your, your sales rep of the year or, you know, you've got a clean safety record or whatever's very important in your work, in your field. You get some kind of award. You just walk around to the other people's cubicle in your little area. That's where you function. And say, I want you guys to quit your job now and come follow me. Because I've succeeded. <laughs> you know? And they're going to be like, what are you smoking? What? What's with so-and-so with the Messiah complex? There's a reason we call it a Messiah complex. Jesus had a Messiah complex. Because <laughs> he's the Messiah. He's not crazy. He would be crazy if he didn't possess all authority. He'd be a total lunatic. Lunatic. It's a made up. It's even worse. It's a loony tick. The loony bin and a lunatic. But he's not. But sometimes we do struggle with saying, I, I just don't know if I can believe that. And in part, it's because we have no one to compare him to. But essentially, that's the very point we're talking about. If we have someone to compare him to, then we're polytheists. And we should worship many of those people that we can compare Jesus to. There's nobody we can compare him to. So we worship him. We trust his authority. Maybe just listen to these helpful words that I've alluded to and we'll wrap things up. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 to 11. 
They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. Revelation seventeen fourteen. On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then maybe one of the... That's Revelation nineteen sixteen. And one that I can't get my mind around. I don't think I ever will. But it shows something of the the complexity and the amazing nature of this plan that God has regarding Christ's authority. It's in that resurrection section in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen and, and hear the emphasis on authority in Jesus. But each his own order, Christ the first fruits. it's talking about his resurrection, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, that would be our resurrected bodies, then comes the end. Looking to the second coming. Then comes the end when he, the Son, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power For he must reign, notice exercising authority, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Notice the authority. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, so authority over death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Clearly the Father has accepted the Son. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. And you go, what? One thing we can see is it's God's great plan to show that He and He alone is God. He alone, therefore, has all authority and He has entrusted it to His only Son. And yet that only Son will ultimately come and give it to the Father. And we see something of this great glimpse of this Trinitarian plan of redemption that centers in Christ, applied to us by the Spirit. And it's where we find our hope. But do notice that it all becomes reality at the return of Christ. So we anticipate His return where we can see His authority unleashed. And what we're seeing in the Gospel account of Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Luke chapter 5 is that He's qualified, that He's giving us a preview of what will be a, an absolute for all eyes to see. Lord, thank You for our time and the Word this morning. Thank You for the fact that You have called the church into being you have promised to build your church, that nothing could stop you from building your church. We know that you do this through the gospel and that you draw men and women and boys and girls by the power of the gospel, that you use your spirit to open blind eyes to see that you are the one who knows us in our sins and yet, because of the perfect work of Christ, you don't hold our sins against us. 
And we're grateful that even our transgressions, our violations against you and against your holy law have been nailed to the cross. And they are not held against us. We are free. And we are free to know you and worship you and and enjoy the sureness of hope in Christ. Help us to act like it. Help us to have a joy like can only be explained because of the power of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.